This is Zain Yao, and welcome back to another episode of PH Divas. Oh yeah, super excited. So, I have a quote for you, just to start off in a very intellectual light. What's in the name, that which we call a rose, by any other name would smell as sweet? From Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. Uh-huh. So we thought that'd be a good quotation for leading into um, a very interesting story, that new story that we got today, about Duke Professor um, Jerry Hugh. Hugh, we had to. Look, I want to call him so I know. I, I need to double check. We double checked the pronunciation of his name. <laughs> he left a New York Times comment, um, and that was a, I believe, a, on a post about the Baltimore, uh, uh, the problems in Baltimore. Yeah, it was so random and unnecessary. But go on. Yes, and so he so he basically compared um, the blacks, end quote, to the Asians, mm-hmm. and said, um, among many other things. Every Asian student has a very simple old American first name that symbolizes their desire for integration. Virtually every black has a strange new name that symbolizes their, their lack of desire for integration. And so there are many Sorry. other comments that he made, including about, um, about intermarriage, which I think would take a whole other podcast to discuss. But we thought that this would be a really interesting starting point to talk about what was wrong with what he just said. Because there's a lot wrong with that. Um... Yeah, where do we start? I mean, I, I'm i literally flabbergasted because on one hand, the idea, I know plenty of, of Asians who, one, don't go by an American name. They still have, they have a very Asian name. And in the times where they actually go by their um, American name, it's because they had to. It's like either you come into this country, you have to take an American name, or they were assigned one when they first came. Yeah. And I think you had, like your grandmother had. Yeah, so for my, my, um, my maternal grandmother got the name Mamie because um, this Mamie. is what you... Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, excuse me. But so No, this, I'm sorry. <laughs> so this is like in Hong Kong, and she was going to uh, a Catholic school. And mm-hmm. so the nuns, I think, who were Italian, couldn't um, say any of the the children's Chinese names, so it was mm-hmm. like, "I'll just we're just gonna name you," and so they just started handing out names, and so she got the name Mamie. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that happens a lot, and I'm just thinking about the people that I know, and when they take on these names, it's not to assimilate. So this idea that people are doing it to assimilate is not not fully correct because most people say, "I'm so tired of people butchering my name. Yeah. Just call me the most random one syllable thing possible." It, but it has nothing to do with this assimilation that he's directly attributing it to. Or at the same time, like, we see that um, Asians who don't change their name often get really vilified for it. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that I know some people who are very stubborn about not wanting to change to a, like, so-called um, American or more normative um, mm-hmm. Western name. And, like, they do get a lot of flack for it. Um, I think that it's a really political decision. And of course, one thing, of course, that you need to bring up for the podcast is, yes, so I have a very simple old American first name, right? (laughs) Zine, and you have a very, quote, strange new name that symbolizes your lack of desire for integration, Liz, Elizabeth. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I know that was hard to pronounce. Yeah, Liz, it was so strange and, you know. But my name, my Zine is such a traditional American name. (laughs) Yeah, um, I guess I haven't done a good job in assimilating. You know what's weird? My name, so my name is my Elizabeth, that's my name. My brother's name is Sydney, and my other brother's name is Sigmund. Like Sigmund Freud. My mom was into this whole um, Sigmund cool Freud trip. Yeah. So I was the only Elizabeth that I knew growing up. I, everyone thought my name was weird. So, so I find this very interesting that, um, that, that he's literally claiming here 
one that that black people choose strange names and by strange there's also problems with that because strange really means not white here which doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's actually strange if you're in this culture or you're around these people you'll realize these names aren't strange at all and you know a lot of people who have different names for different reasons mm -hmm. but yeah and perhaps some context for our listeners so what would be like a more typical name from the area that you're from that made elizabeth seem so strange or like what would yeah i'm so i grew up in mississippi and um i'm trying to think about how to say this because i don't want to i don't want to say that these are all like all black people are named this but growing up a lot of my classmates um a lot of like keisha's and then um like Dominique, um, Tamika, Shamika, Lamika, there was this really interesting trend happening where there'd be like a common name and you either add a prefix or a suffix to it. Mm. So again, like Keisha, then it's like Maisha, Lamisha, Lakeisha, Shakisha, Dakisha. Like literally you go down the alphabet and you would just see this or like Antoinette, they're always like a Anique on the end of something. Mm -hmm. But those are the names that I, I grew up with most people having. And then you had like Rebecca's, you had Ashley's, Lawrence, but um, but definitely my name was weird. I did not, again, I didn't know any other Elizabeths growing up. Mm -hmm. my, one of my friends, I don't know if she actually listens to this, but her name is Shanquilla. And I actually remember in high school, um, there was this thing that girls would do, and that is make up names of your future children. Mm -hmm. And then they would also pair like your, the last name you wanted, like Robinson or something, Martinez, like you want to marry someone else. And um, I remember she got really creative, um, really, really creative. I'm not going to say their names because I think she actually ended up using some of them like years later. Okay. But uh, yeah, that those are the kind of names of the people that I knew growing up. Okay. What about you? Like what was the breakdown of? Of the names in my high yeah. school. So uh, as I've mentioned before, like at least 50% of the kids at my school were Asian, um, either first or second generation. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that what's, what's interesting to me is that I guess everyone I knew growing up did have, uh, went primarily by a so-called um, Canadian name, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we had a lot, but also what was interesting is that you, I think you saw this real generational difference from people from Hong Kong uh, that there was like uh, a generation of older names. So you had a lot of Eugenes or Vivians, a lot of As Asian Vivians, um, a lot of uh, Jeffreys, spelled like Jeffrey Chaucer, so with a G. Um, <laughs> also like Mabel's a very popular name from Hong Kong as well, because mm -hmm. apparently it's a very close homonym to the word for beautiful. But again, like you wouldn't see like the name Mabel or Eugene as commonly among like a generation of like white North American kids. Yeah. So like, even though like quote unquote, it might be considered a traditional name, like it's still, very much inflected by a different, a, a generational difference. And also, um, there's also perhaps less common names like Angel, or I've mm -hmm. heard that there's like a Cinderella and other yeah, sort of names. Angel. Yeah, that, um, so people are, um, Asian North Americans are like modifying like quote unquote, like North American names to their own purposes. Um, so I, I went to Catholic school and one reason why I go by Zine, which is not my given name, is that there are a lot of Christines Mm -hmm. tons of Christines and so for one way for me to stand out then uh, was to to modify my name and to make it more my own so how you get Zion out of Christine in case people have been wondering and I always I like to, <laughs> sort of doing this as my trick one of the when I in my early stages of acquaintance with people mm -hmm. so basically you know how you have you abbreviate Christmas to Xmas so you take the Christ out of uh, Christmas and replace it with X so you just do that with Christine take the Christ out of Christine and replace it with an X and then that's how you get Zion 
And so I did that in grade nine and I've stuck with it ever since as my, my preferred name. For me, it's about um, having sort of stamp of in individuality. Mm -hmm. And I also sort of like, because as someone who does queer theory, like having the initials XY, um, I think is particularly interesting. Yeah, I'm jealous of the ease of your last name, yeah. <laughs> of your acronym here. Yeah, so I think it's, um, but also at the same time, even though everyone I knew growing up went primarily by a North American name, there's this often this perception that your Chinese name was your real name, quote unquote. So this way that this, the Chinese name was supposed to be like mm -hmm. the real name that you, um, on the flip side, had to like, that the, the quote unquote white name that you had was like some sort of sign of assimilation. But that wasn't the case because like people primarily had, um, went by like a name like Amanda or Ivana or, or, or Carmen. And so what's interesting for me is that sometimes people will ask me like, so when I went by Christine, what's your real name? And I do have a Chinese name, but no one ever uses it. So it's not mm -hmm. like a real name that's like somehow closer to my authentic self than anything else. I like to sort of compare it to this um, fantastic children's fantasy series, A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin, where the way magic works in the world is that if you know the true names of things, you have power over it. Well, mm -hmm. in real life, it doesn't work like that. Like there's no real authentic name for me. And I think what's funny is, I think I get respect when I ask to be called Zion instead of Christine is that I think sometimes people just think it's a Chinese name. So they feel like they have to be respectful of it and respectful of my choice. Yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, like there's a double standard. So you when you go only by your um, Asian name, then you're said to be not assimilating. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you go by your Asian name, you also get credit for being more authentic, like more um, for being different, I guess. Yeah, so on the one hand, you get screwed over for assimilating too well or not assimilating. Are they by the same populations of people, you find? Um, not necessarily, but I, f I don't know. I feel like it's just a, such a double-edged sword either way. But I do, obviously, I do end up playing into the fact that some people think that Zion is the real Chinese name because it's like, it is the name I prefer, and if I can get people to pay respect to it because they think it's Chinese, so mm -hmm. be it. Yeah, I'm thinking about my own experiences, and I'm actually aware that having the name Elizabeth has been helpful mm -hmm. in a lot of instances. Um, and it's not, and I know what to think, I don't know what to think about it because it wasn't like, I came out of the womb, it's like, I will be called Elizabeth, right? Yeah. It had nothing to do with my name being what it is. And I don't think that my parents intentionally try to name me something different. Again, Sydney and Sigmund, that is not, that is not the trend that your daughter then is going to be named like Shaniqua or something. Not that that's a bad name, mm -hmm. but when I think about that and I think about the privilege that I've sort of gotten or just wondering, did people view me differently because my name wasn't something else? Yeah, because there's, there's a famous study about um, identical resumes, but with like mm -hmm. white quote sounding names versus black sounding names, and like this response rates are completely different. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think you've, you've actually told me a story about when you're in your undergrad, when you're I think going to be moving into a roommate, and the way oh, that yeah. your name like actually gave you a form of racial passing. Yeah, I just, you know, when you, when you, we were going to college, we. I was going to college and I had the phone call with one of my roommates and it was very interesting because, you know, her name was Vanessa Chang. Oh my God. It's very easy. Hey, Vanessa. Um, it was very easy to know who was who. Her last name was Chang. Um, so we were talking and it became very clear to me that there was no way to know who I was because my name is Elizabeth Celeste Wayne. And... All she knows is I'm from Mississippi. I'm also going to school. We're living together. And the kind of questions she was asking me were very funny. It's like, what kind of cuisine do you like? Where do you go? Where do you, what do you like to do? 
and she didn't really there was just nothing kind of a way to say I was black not to mention my voice didn't really sound what people would think of as being black mm-hmm. so I remember at the end of the conversation I just say oh by the way I'm black and then she's <laughs> like something like oh thank god like I was wondering what she I couldn't tell uh-huh. and I think that was particularly bad I mean but I there's nothing wrong with that I think I would be asking the same question if it weren't more obvious to me um but it, but it was interesting to think that I had this very generic name and there were no assumptions that were made mm-hmm. based on that. And my voice just gave everything away, or gave nothing away, rather. Actually, what happens with my last name being Wayne, that if I say it very quickly, sometimes people think I'm saying Wang, like oh, W-A-N-G. Really? So sometimes people, I remember this was one phone interview or something, someone thought I was Asian because of the Wang. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. They thought I was saying Wang or Juan, or I'm and I'll, I can tell because then when they translated back to me, like in a written piece of paper or something, they W A N G, and I always have to be careful to spell it out and say W A Y N E. Yeah, I'm just I'm so used to just having to spell my name to people Y A O, because <laughs> of, often people just know don't know how to translate that y- or like write write Y-O-W. that out at all. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, or Yeo or is one pronunciation I've, oh, I've heard quite a bit when I was growing up. So given this history that I have and that you have with this naming scheme, I actually find it very offensive to both parties involved that this is way too simplistic. Um, the reasons that he's saying that people are a sibling versus not are not really, yeah, in my like opinion, it completely erases fair. like also these collective histories of why people are pressured to have certain names. I think there's something very loaded with him complaining about virtually every black has a strange new name when of course this whole legacy in this country of um of black people being forcefully brought um through slavery to america and being forced mm-hmm. to have new names yeah uh, right Cause, yeah because <laughs> he wants to force other like appropriate new america like old american names mm-hmm. upon a population that have ever, has already been uh, generationally dis- disenfranchised of other names so given what we've just talked about in the history of our names that's why i particularly think what this professor from duke jerry ho said Hugh said was actually really, really offensive and just so off base. That's not my name. I don't have a strange name. Um, I object to him calling these names just be strange because mm-hmm. they're not actually strange for the people who are inhabiting that namespace. And then the history that he's sort of invoking on is just, just actually he's just leaving out, leave, literally leaving out the history. Yeah, and it's sort of funny, as someone who's a politics professor, he's completely alighting the politics of those particular histories, the, the histories of, um, of immigration for, uh, for Asians in North America, but of course, the history of slavery, where all these um, generationally, the people have had their names completely eradicated or being forced to have mm-hmm. more respectable names for various various reasons, being renamed, forced to take the, um, the last names of plantation owners and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes, I think, particularly loaded that this... Um, old white professor from Duke is um, admonishing uh, black Americans for not having appropriate names given this sort of legacy, especially um, of forcing, you know, appropriate quote unquote names on black people in America. Or consider the idea that really it's laziness on the majority of um, some Americans part because the reason why some Asians take on American names or not American white names is because they're too lazy to actually pronounce the other names Mm -hmm. properly, right? Or you're like, oh, I can't pronounce this name, so I'm going to call you Mamie. I yeah. can't pronounce this, I'm going to call you Jane. Yeah. 
And again, for a politics professor, completely forgetting about the actual politics of what might be involved. Yeah. Um, one exercise I like to begin a lot of my classes with to draw attention to the uh, about the importance of languages and naming is to like get everyone to go around and like explain how did they get their first name or last name. Mm -hmm. And it sort of shows how like family histories and different cultures become embedded in the names mm -hmm. that we use every day and that there's a type of power in naming and a power in, in language and words in general. Actually, I did that with my lab once. Oh, really? Yeah, I did that as an um, icebreaker. It was really, it was actually really fun. I actually did think I, I learned more about people. Mm -hmm. And some people were very attached to their names and they really liked their names. And some people were very upset when you said it wrong, more so than other people. And that was just like a really interesting dynamic to see why were people named the things that they were named. Even, I mean, I have a, a name behind a reason why I'm named this way. Um, so it, it was really interesting to, to see that happening amongst a diverse population of people. Yeah, like context is so important. Context in history is so important. And mm -hmm. the names are one way that we... We carry that down, and of course, you, um, er, earlier you brought up that, of course, that's why Malcolm X decided to go by Malcolm X. Yeah, literally leaving out the last name because that last name extended from slavery. Mm -hmm. Similarly, like I think that there's a, a very popular sketch by Kean Peel, <laughs> where uh, um, the supply the teacher comes into this white suburban classroom, mm -hmm. and. Um, instead of saying like Denise says D nice or instead mm -hmm. of Aaron A Aaron, and I think part of the reason why it resonates so much with a, such a wide audience of people is that it sort of draws attention to the way that um, maybe Black people in America are able to defamiliarize uh, very like quote unquote traditional white names, mm -hmm. <laughs> and sort of ends up like flipping the power of that to some extent. Yeah, I love that. And, for, and so the way much. that he forces the names on them, because he's like, no, that is a ridiculous, Timothy, that's or like Timothy, that's mm -hmm. a ridiculous name. Mm -hmm. And so like, it sort of, I think, sort of becomes a parody of that type of um, forceful history of naming. Yeah, you know what's even funnier about that clip is when I show it to different people, like almost, <laughs> this is so mathematical, but just literally clocking the times that it takes people to actually, how long is their response time? Right. As a, and then like on one axis, if it took you a whole sketch to realize what was happening, you might not be that diverse. You may not, you know, I don't know, maybe this mark of whiteness privilege here. But if you recognize instantly like you, I mean, there's like this relationship they have. And, and I would find that a lot of people like I got it, like the first example it was mm -hmm. hilarious. So some people I, I show it to them and they're still thinking, I have no idea what's going on. What are they saying? Why is this funny? Like, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, some people don't, don't think that's funny. And I think it's hilarious. And, and actually going to your, your theme here, what you were just saying about how people may be using these names to rebel or mm -hmm. to sort of be a little different. Again, I, I talked about the naming schemes of my friends growing up. And a lot of them did have very base names, right, with a prefix or suffix added or some words change. But those names are actually based on old English or French names, mm -hmm. right? And they're just kind of mixing it up. I see a lot of people have hyphens in their names or just um, different alternative spellings. Yeah, like there's a way that uh, they're making the name their own by like remixing and adapting it. There's something yeah. really creative going on Trying there. to make yourself unique. Actually, when I think about names and how they're treated, that's what makes me a little sad because when I see the names... I really see them trying to make themselves unique and try and do something different and creative. Mm -hmm. I see creativity when I see those names and I don't necessarily like how they're disrespected or not treated very well mm -hmm. by other people. And that said, because my name is so generic in a way, mm -hmm. 
and I recognize that that's a privilege that, you know, I can walk into a space as a blank slate and I'm not quite convinced that other people have that privilege. I also feel like this awkward relationship, you know, like when I have a, my name gives me a little bit of privilege in mm-hmm. an unprivileged position. How do I deal with that? Yeah. Again, like, cause you can pass on paper with just your name. Also this professor from Duke would say, good job. Your parents did an amazing job with you. Because yeah, because you assimilate you. with your name, right? Yeah, and I don't, I think that's not at all like what's happening right here. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not Names good. are very interesting. So there was a, a book that was published by someone who did her MFA here um, called We Need, no- we Need New Names by mm-hmm. No Violet Bulawayo. It's a really brilliant book, but I think this, is, and it's about, um, I think partially based off her experience coming to to America and New Jersey. It's a really hilarious, really smart book, but like the title I think really sort of sums it up, Mm -hmm. like this need for needing new names and like um, the type of creativity that's involved in it. But also I think on the flip side of the Key and Peele sketch, I can't really imagine what an Asian version of that would look like. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of it. Um, You stumped me. Yeah, I I mean, I honestly don't know. like, I, I just don't know. I think that, in general, him comparing blacks and whites in this way is... is or blacks ex- and Asians, I mean. I'm sorry. Blacks and Asians is extremely problematic because you're oh, yes. placing them, you're pitting them against each other. There's no competition, right? And, but you're pitting them against each other and you're saying they're doing it right and they're doing it wrong um, when really we're fighting the same rate, the same struggle, which is being forced to assimilate in a... Yeah, and white supremacy yeah. is sort of making us fight against each other. Yes. And this goes back to the coining, original coining of the term model minority in 1966, mm-hmm. where it was explicit, like Asians were called the model minority explicitly to hold them up as being the quote-unquote good minority versus um, African-Americans uh, that during the time of civil civil rights movement as like the bad minority. Mm-hmm. And so there's a way that like Asian-Americans and African-Americans are being pitted against each other. And when really, um, although we don't have the same struggle, we are still... We have similar struggles, but mm-hmm. we can't say that we, our struggles are the same. And yeah. so I think that's really disingenuous of him to make that comparison, but it's also a strangely accurate um, reproduction of the same sort of discourse of, um, of sort of trying to make a divide between Asians right. and African-Americans in this country. Right. And, and the, that brings up two things. So one, the comparison to, to try to directly compare the black and Asian experience in America as he does so eloquently in his New York Times comment is one not correct right so they're they're not they're not the same experience mm-hmm. there and there are reasons why there's so much history involved and why the trajectories are different one and then two is setting up this model minority myth as you say doesn't help Asians either because what it really does is put them on this perfection model mm-hmm. where they're going to say, I'm not going to complain because I'm just going to keep doing what I'm going to do because I'm getting ahead. And all you're finding is that they're not getting ahead as yeah, far. And or still... Yeah, the bamboo ceiling, as we see in a lot of corporations, yes. like we will be hired as employees, but we won't be real leaders. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that the model minority myth like obscures like a lot of issues of, of poverty in like South Asian communities. Because mm-hmm. people, when people think of Asian, they usually end up just thinking of like East Asian or like a very set mm-hmm. population of um, East Asians who were able to come to North America because of certain privilege they had in their exactly. home country. Like, there is a certain class of people. It's not representative of, like, all people from China or from Japan or Korea. Yeah, so look up the model minority myth. Basically, I mean, from what I remember from my, my classes is, so in the 1970s, there are immigration laws such that you could come to the U.S., but you had to have a Ph.D. 
mm-hmm. right? Or a certain amount of money. I or think, a certain well. amount of money. So that already meant that you had privilege and you had education. And those are both factors that we know um, can translate into future generations having better chances of succeeding yeah. and having, again, more money, having a household, being able to own land and get, get a great job. And then it was until the 90s that those laws were relaxed. And then you, get, you begin to see a different migration of people from Asia. Yeah, and those refugees. are people who don't necessarily just have PhDs and have privilege. And that's where you see more people doing lower tasks. And I think that if you think about this, there are a select amount of people coming in in the 70s, right? And there's a reason why you see all these people and you think this is where they are. They're all in academia or something. Because yeah. they're the only people you're allowing to see. But that doesn't that doesn't by any means represent the entire cascade. And you compare that to African Americans who've been in this country for over 400 years, right? Mm -hmm. And were slaves for half of that time. They're not the same experiences at all. Yeah, and this is why, like, not to keep on coming back to this point, like, I think that um, recent movements like now, like Model model Minority Mutiny, for example, Mm -hmm. and like Asians for Black Lives are so particularly important because it's really important for us as Asian North Americans to question these myths Mm -hmm. and to like, yeah, break down that privilege, but also to use it and also to to seek solidarity with other people of color. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I kind of, I like this trend that's happening. like for um, our friendship, yay! Like, there's a fist bump happening, you can't <laughs> see that. But <laughs> go, to go back to this professor, I'm very upset with him because as a faculty member at a very prestigious institution, I expect him to be able to have sound reasoning or to exhibit that. Someone who's, who's done a lot of peer-reviewed publications and probably reviewed other publications, I don't see the... the I don't see the nuance that I would expect yeah, from someone here. Like, if he is able to get tenure at a, at a place like Duke, what, where is the quality of his, his analysis when he leaves comments like this? Yeah, right? there's, there's no, there's like, issue, here's what I think is the reason why it happened. And they're just, it's just horrible. Yeah, my understanding is he's actually on leave right now. And I, I will give credit to Duke that they, the administration has condemned what he said. But also, um, to, uh, for those of you who not, might not be aware of this uh, history, a couple months ago, Someone left a noose hanging on a tree mm. in the middle of Duke campus. Um, so there, there's been a particularly heightened awareness of it. And like Duke has had a, a number of incidents in the past few years that have been um, very racially charged. And mm-hmm. I think, so the community and I think the administration has to have a heightened sense of it. Um, although I think as Liz pointed out, like the extent to how the administration is responding to it is sometimes not like this is racism, but more as like, how is this tarnishing the image of the university? Yeah. I'm very, I'm, I've been upset the whole time. I'm upset that all of the critiques that I've seen, nobody's saying he's wrong. Everyone's saying it looks bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a disservice. That subconsciously, because what he also mentions in his quote, he'll say that I'm not going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it because I'm going to be the, brow, the bold one to say it, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone knows I'm right, but no one wants to say it. And so when you... So when you don't say that he's wrong in this format, you're actually agreeing with him. You're saying you're agreeing with his assumption that I'm thinking what everyone else is thinking. I'm just old enough to say it. Yeah. And I have nothing to risk. And that's not true. Like, I think that it's the very subtle messages in this comment that really, really bother me. Mm-hmm. And there's subtle ways that we're responding to it that we're saying, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. And we should respect your you know, right to say it, which, you know, given the other 
other um, comments have been made by professors, you know, I think there's a stance in that, but he's still wrong, and people need to say he's actually wrong, and people actually need to say, not only are you wrong, but you're wrong for these reasons. Yeah, it's not just that it's, it's inaccurate, it's, um, for a scholar, for an academic, it's sloppy, intellectually lazy, it's disingenuous, mm -hmm. it is, it's not just that we're saying that, it's like, no, he's like, it's not, it's not, we're not critiquing this, of course, from our stance of you know, what's politically correct or politically incorrect. It's just that it's bad, it's sloppy, it's bad scholarship. It's not scholarship. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just embarrassing for that reason. Yeah. It's, it really scares me that he's, you know, out here saying this. That said, you can, I can see his stance a little more clearly now because he says, I'm 80 years old. Um, and he's like, I've done my career, I've done my life, I'm going to say this stuff. And... That's a little scary. Yeah. How many people think this way? But he thinks that he's one of the good people. And so a, a part of the quotation that, when his response that really intrigued me is that he claimed to be a, quote, disciple of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. um, that he said, like, oh, one of the first texts he taught was Black Like Me, which is already, a friend pointed out, is a very interesting choice if you think that's your go-to for race relations mm -hmm. in the U.S. So for those of you who might not know, it's the story of this a white, it's the true story of this white reporter who basically dyed his skin black and then tried to live mm -hmm. his life like that and then wrote an expose about Which it. Which yet again is, I mean, there's so much literature on this. Just because you have one black friend or you do that yeah. one black thing does not, that is not what institutional racism is, that is not what prejudice is, and that is that has nothing to do with the actual issues going on with, with black people. Yeah, and if you're going to make you an ally. Yeah, that, that's a good point because like, I, I, the word disciple was so interesting. Disciple Martin Luther King Jr. Well, so was Alice Sharpton. Actually, so were a lot of people after the assassination of, of Martin Luther King when they needed a new leader for that movement. Um, new shoes to fill to be like the presidential um, go-to. <laughs> so we're running out of time here. And we could go on forever and forever because unfortunately these issues keep going and professors keep talking and talking. And, and writing. Think, and I think it's a really interesting generational difference for us as well, that he's someone who has tenure, has so much power, where, whereas we are people who are coming to the end of their PhDs. And I think that we do represent a different generation. Um, and I think so. I think we're also speaking from that standpoint. Um, there's a lot more of that's um, in the comments that he left, and I encourage you to read his full comment if you can. Um, but also, for, we'll yeah. be listing some some of the critiques that we've seen online that we thought were pretty good. So that's the end of our podcast. Um, Feel free to check us out on iTunes. We and so, Stitcher. Yes, and Stitcher. And comment, rate, review, share, love us. Zion fills in all my sentences <laughs> perfect. Um, so again, I'm Liz. I'm Zion. Thanks and for listening.